right, folks, welcome back to another episode of Not Funny Guys Presents Why, exploring the philosophy, rhetoric, and cultural impact of the MCU. I am your host, Dr. John, and I'm joined by one of my best friends, Eric, who knows some, but not a lot, about philosophy. No, no, no. All right. Rhetoric? No. All right. And when it comes to comic books, he is very familiar with the culture of the movies. Yes. Which is why he's here to talk to me. So this pod is an extension of our main podcast, Not Funny Guys Present Off the Reels, where we explore the films. And here we go a little bit deeper into some of the ideas that stick out and have some debate about it, you know, some dialogic conversation. And we start by asking the question, why? And so this is episode 11. We are we are we have previously on the main pod talked about Thor Ragnarok and Spider-Man No Way Home. So let's. um make sure that we uh, bring ourselves up to speed with some characters. So we'll start with Thor and let's start with our character, Hela, who is the Norse goddess of hell with only one L. So H E double nothing, just one hockey stick, the <laughs> Norse underworld, of course. And in the mythology, as Casey noted in our main pod, she is Loki's daughter. Mm. Um, in the comics. In, in, in the comic books, not yeah. in, of course, in the MCU. Right. Um, but in the comic books, she is Loki's daughter, just as she is in Norse mythology. Um, now, she was created by, in the comic book version of her, was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And they created her and made her the goddess of death. Uh, she is first appeared in Journey into Mystery, number 102, in 1964. And she's not only the ruler of hell, but Niflim, um, the world of mist, is another realm she's in charge of. Mist? We also yes mist like what is that just mist <laughs> all right <laughs> we also have heimdall now this is the first time we've seen him he's been around <laughs> since the first thor movie but we didn't necessarily really get around to introducing him he is, of course is also based on the norse deity of the same name and he's described as all seeing and all hearing in this and is the sole protector of the bifrost of in asgard um, the comic book version of him was created or adapted, shall we say, by Stan Lee, his brother Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby, and first appeared in Journey into Mystery number 85 in 1962. Now, Valkyrie, or the Valkyries, in this particular case, in the comics, the character known as Valkyrie was a tall, blonde, very Norse-looking woman. Um, I think we, as I mentioned on the main podge, we get to see a glimpse of this sort of version of her that gets killed by Hela when the other Valkyries are in the process of um, taking her down. So I feel like that was kind of a little bit of a nod. Uh, the comic book version of her was created by Roy Thomas and John Buscema and first appeared in The Avengers number 83 in 1970. And of course, she is based on the Norse mythological figure, and I'm going to butcher this here, Brynhildr. Uh, a shield maiden, shield maiden or Valkyrie of epic poems from the Norse culture. Then, of course, we have our the finisher or the doom of Asgard, played brilliantly by Clancy Brown, Serta. Uh, he is, of course, in the comic books, a very sort of rep rep repeating villain of Thor, you might say, an antagonist. Um, he is based on Serta, the uh, who was foretold to be a major figure in helping to bring about Ragnarok, carrying a bright sword. And he goes into battle with the Aesir, uh, and he will battle the major god Freyr, and afterwards the flames that he brings forth will engulf the earth. So, 
not too far off, right? Yeah. That's from Norse mythology. Mild, mild. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he was adapted again by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and first appeared in Journey to Mystery number 97 in 1963. <laughs> now, that kind of covers what I cared about. So I'm going to tell you, Scourge, I, I may have forgotten about you, and mm-hmm. I think you'll get over it. Um, but he, like, I think we talked about him on the main pod. He is a real character. Um, oh, wait, I did write down about him. He actually goes by the comic book name, The Executioner. Um, he is an Asgardian who first appeared in Journey to Mystery number 103 in 1964, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And he's been both a villain and an anti-hero. And interestingly enough, he is part Frost Giant. He is actually hails from the home world of Jotunheim and is himself a half giant. So we also have um, two other characters I want to hit on from Thor. And then we'll move on to Spider-Man here is the Grandmaster. Uh, okay. First appeared in the Avengers number number sixty nine in nineteen sixty nine. Make of that what you will. He was created by Roy Thomas and Sal Bushima. He is one of the elders of the universe, a group of supervillains that the Collector is also a member. And in sometimes in the comic book continuity, he is actually the Collector's brother. Ooh. So, um, once possessed the Mind Gem. And is the master of the games of the head of the contest of champions. He is a master of all games, basically. Um, And he actually, at one point in the early 2000s, orchestrated a crossover where the Avengers fought the Justice League because of him. So, And then finally, we have Korg. Um, Korg is a version of a character that first appeared uh, in Journey into Mystery number 83 in 1962. But the official character Korg did not appear until the Incredible Hulk number 93 in 2006 in the Planet Hulk storyline. So where we see him in the MCU is exactly where we meet him in the comic books. And in fact, we've met him before when we watched uh, Planet Hulk. So he was created by Greg Pak and Carlos uh, Paglian. He is a Cronin. Uh, these are the first we've met a Cronin before. Well, yes, we have. And Cronin, they actually first first appeared. Yeah, yeah, we have met. (laughs) If we go by my conspiracy theory, we may very well. (laughs) Um, he first appeared in 1962, the Cronin as a race. That's where the sort of tangular backstory comes from. Um, apparently, this uh, particular core was a prisoner of the Red King where he was taken to the planet Sakar and forced to be a gladiator. This is where he would meet Hulk and become an ally. So as he does very much so in the movies. Um, now turning to Spider-Man, we have, um, let's see, one, two, three, four characters. No, five. Okay. Real briefly, I want to give an honorable mention to Aaron Davis, uh, played in this by uh, Donald Glover. He is a sort of very minor character, but if you do know uh, or are familiar with the Spider-Verse movies, this is the uncle of Miles Morales, who is tangently very briefly referenced and will become the supervillain Prowler. Or perhaps he will. If you've seen any of the Spider-Verse movies, both of them, you will have. And if you saw the second one across, you would see Donald Glover actually playing the Prowler. For real. It from In a real life context in an yes, animated movie. Exactly. Almost seeming to reference that he could pop up in a, a spinoff of some sort. Yes, of actually very so. Um, interesting Donald, interesting side note. Donald Glover has a lot of history when it comes to Miles Morales. He is the inspiration for Miles Morales' creation by Brian Michael Bendez. Um, so there is a, a lot of interconnectivity. So to have him in that film or in a film in any way connected to Miles Morales makes a lot of sense. So 
Um, of course, we have Ned, and the Ned from the comic books is very much not like the Ned we meet in the in the uh, MCU. No? The Ned in the comic books, or rather Edward Ned Leeds, is a supporting character in Spider-Man comics. <laughs> yeah, I know. And a, a fellow reporter at the Daily Bugle. He's also an abusive husband to one oh, Betty Jesus. Brandt, oh, uh, who we saw played by Elizabeth Banks in the Tobey Maguire universe. He went on to become the supervillain Hobgoblin, too. He first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 18 in 1964. He was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And at one point, he was killed off in 1987 in a one-shot Spider-Man versus Wolverine. But then they said, no, 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 we're bringing him back. So, fun story. Nice. So, the one we see in the MCU is very much not that net. Now, the other sort of alteration, of course, is our character Michelle, known as MJ. Um, Her name is Michelle Jones Watson. And she, of course, is a variant on Mary Jane Watson, also MJ, who is a longtime love interest of Peter Parker uh, and his wife, depending on the continuity. The main version of the traditional mainline version of MJ was depicted, of course, by Kirsten Dunst in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man universe and first appeared in comics in 1965 in The Amazing Spider-Man number 25. She, of course, was created by Stan Lee and John Ramada Sr., Interestingly enough, at one point, she was meant to be kind of a throwaway character until they decided to kill off Gwen Stacy. Yeah. Um, Flash Thompson uh, was created by Stan Lee and Steve Gitko and first appeared at the same time as Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy number 15 in 1962. He was Always a, a bully or did he evolve? Yes, actually. He was a high school player who bullied Peter Parker, but was also a super fan of Spider-Man, which is strangely played on very much so in the in this version too or as i like to call in the holland continuity ncu setup really highlights this interconnectivity of how part of him he's actually a a a character with more position and more uh shall we say presence in the holland mcu timeline than he ever has been at any other point um he's he's the um he's the stiffler you know what i mean yeah he very much it's like he's kind of the asshole that is still part of the group yeah. Yes. And apparently if you if you go deep enough into the lore in the comic books, at one point he did join the US Army where he lost both of his legs before oh, being bonded to the Venom symbiote and becoming Agent Venom. And for a time did serve with the Guardians of the Galaxy. So <laughs> fun times. Of course. Uh we also have Aunt May. So or Maybell May Parker Jameson, aka maiden name Riley. The Jameson name comes from the fact that in the comic book, she married J. Jonah Jameson's father, John Jonah Jameson Sr., who later died. She first appeared. Yeah. So she got married to J. Jonah Jameson's dad. So does that mean the uncle in in the Tobey Maguire and for that matter, Martin Sheen are. No, no, no. that's, That's 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 Uncle Ben. That's when he's dead. She later on remarries. She okay. remarries okay. Uh, Jameson's father, which then makes, in a weird way, that makes him weird. and Peter Parker makes Peter Parker like his step, like cousin, actually a cousin. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Um, she first appeared, of course, appeared in Amazing Fantasy number fifteen, um, where she loses her first husband, Benjamin Parker, Uncle Ben. She was created, of course, by Stanley and Steve Ditko. Now, this leads us to our main villain character, and I want to—I saved him for last because he is the focal point that I want to have our conversation today on. Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. The Vulture, first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number two in 1962, created by Stan Lee and Steve Vitko, a reoccurring supervillain of Spider-Man, of course. 
He is from Staten Island, New York, and a former elect electronic engineer. He had used his used that background skill to build a flight harness uh, in partnership with someone who eventually screwed him over by embezzling funds. And that is one of the reasons why he turned to crime. So he has a slightly sympathetic story, which we also see very much depicted in the MCU. And this brings me to something I wanted to talk about that I found really fascinating and still do considering um, Adrian Toomes, a kind of uh, particularly the way he's depicted in the MCU even more as an incredibly sympathetic character. And I sort of titled my topic here is forgotten man of Adrian Toomes versus the elite Tony Stark. And so in Spider-Man homecoming, this is the premise you have to establish. If you really want to think about why, tombs turns to the way he does imagine having your job taken by a secret service that worked with the government without any remuneration if i recall the only thing that they were offered was jail sins if they refused to comply yeah and you have to uh, then you have some cocky shield employee give him the glib remark don't ever overextend yourself and so what's this, interesting is I'm curious to know if there were like contracts broken. Maybe that's getting too deep. I know, there, but, but remember like, he had a contract with the city, so you imagine that yeah. this is some sort of override. But here's what I want to read. This is from an article but by they, Ryan. I would think he would at least be paid out, and they would say uh, that. Apparently yeah. not. So here's an article by Ryan Smith, and I, I'll include the link in our show notes. Mm-hmm. He says, Toombs clearly embodies the, shall we say, working uh, white working class voter the media has obsessed over since 2016 election. And the alienated blue collar middle-aged white guy were told voted for Trump due to economic anxiety, racism, sexism, xenophobia, or some combination of those attributes to its credit. Homecoming isn't interested in a one dimensional depiction of tombs. He's selfish, but lives by a complicated code of honor. The nuance in surprising consideration that the bad guys in the Marvel movies don't feel like real people, but rather like unrelatable adolescent fantasies come to light. Powerful robots, aliens, and uh, garnished dressing of Nordic gods. Um, but this sort of idea here is that what Tombs reflects back is, is that the so-called American dream is a cultural lie. A convenient one, we're told so that we blame ourselves for our own place in a codified system. Toombs knows this, and as the vulture, he hungrily strips some of the flesh off the rotting corpse of capitalism for himself and his loved ones. When the broken system works in favor of the rich instead of the little guy, why not pilfer the little piece of wreckage to help support your family? This leads us to what I would like to have us further discuss in relationship to this. When the broken system works in favor of the rich instead of the little guy, why not pilfer to provide for your family? I want to take that last statement and let's expand on that. What do we think about this? Relatability. So do we think he's a relatable character? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, definitely. Right. I think that, Somewhat early on, we kind of sense some. Well, and it's also Michael Keaton acting. But oh like, gosh, yeah, Michael Keaton. Kills where, <laughs> yeah, but also you sense that early on that there's something kind of behind those eyes that are a little bit is a little bit dangerous and dreamy. No, um, <laughs> but like so, obviously he represents that kind of every man. They really, they really spread that on thick. I think with that. Well, they, that they establish in the opening scene. scene. Right? Yeah, the opening sequence. They really do knock it out of the park by having him basically like trying to be reasonable right, right. and them just telling him nope 
It's this and nothing here. else. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you know, he leaves, he finds out more about what's going on. And then they discover that they didn't turn over some truckload. And what does he do? Does he say, let's give it back? He's like, he, he's already now realized the game is rigged. He's had his eyes opened. Right. And so he's like, no, I'm going to get mine. And I think that there is certainly a, a sympathy and, and empathy, I don't know, empathy um, from everyone in, in the kind of middle class, I imagine, or, or, mm-hmm. or lower to say, yeah, I, that's that's me. I bust my hump all day and I don't get shit for it. And it feels like I have to I have to do extra. Right. I have to go out and, you know, commit crimes. No, I, I don't think a lot of people are doing that. But I, I feel like there is that sort of fear of that feeling of constant struggle in people's lives you know well besides theft what is his biggest crime in the eyes of spider-man his biggest crime is that he is marketing and selling weapons that are falling in the hands of people and they are using them to commit further crimes and possibly get people hurt and killed that in a way is no different than what tony stark was doing for decades and in a weird way that's no different than what shall we say pure capitalism would be perfectly fine with you know, uninhibited capitalism. That's, that's not the problem. Yeah. It's like, it's about profit. He does what he has to do to make the means that he can then achieve, you know, manufacture what he needs to do to make his, his money. You know, but, he's a piece, he's, he's profit. You know, if we're going to use a Michael Douglas here from uh, wall street, it's like, you know, greed is good. I mean, he's just leaning into that. Granted, he's not necessarily taking it on with any kind of, shall we say explicit moral code, but he does seem to have a complicated kind of sense of a code. But could you argue then that he becomes a representation of capitalism as well? Right. And there's an argument to be made that will corrupt capitalism, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh yeah. 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 He's, he's fighting corruption with corruption. He's using the weapon of his enemy. You know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of anybody. Sorry to go off topic here, but he's like uh, Luthen Rael and Andor who makes the statement that he's very self-aware that he's using the tools of his enemy to fight them. And in a way, kind of what Adrian Toomes is doing here, he is doing the exact same thing that he thinks, or he has characterized as what the, um, the elites do. And he's just like, I, I can play this game too, you know, where they don't get caught or they don't get in trouble. Why should I? You know, that sort of seems to be a little bit of his reasoning, but he also does seem to care about, you know, not making a big scene out of things, you know, following kind of rules and conduct. I mean, he's literally with that one guy, that first shocker guy he ends up accidentally killing. He literally created that guy. I mean, he brought him in and he actually provided him with the true sense of lawlessness that that guy then just amplified. He doesn't seem to be quite aware that his own conduct will attract to him characters of an unsavory nature where he might not be yes, as unsavory agreed. well example, then that's he's because saying, he's he's very much a um he's a pirate not a privateer right well yeah he he is he is well <laughs> i'd even say he yeah he, he is very much a pirate he's but he's like one of those pirates that you think of in a noble sense who is doing it for some you know lauded ends i don't know that he I does i mean that. he has provided his wife and family with a very nice life i mean that house but I, I don't I don't know that I I don't know that I would allow him to to elevate to like that Robin Hood status that you just kind of I feel like compared I, to I wouldn't I give like, I wouldn't give him Robin Hood either. I'm just saying he, that because he's no... robbing the rich and giving to himself, right? That's yes. that's kind of the key difference of, of everything yeah. right there is that 
that's it's he's and I mean he's robbing them obviously and stuff like that and then it gets to a place in the movie at least where it becomes unhinged right he's willing to mm-hmm. put people in jeopardy he compromises his, his own values yeah right well that's why I call him a pirate yeah. think about this way I, that's why I would call him a pirate and not Robin Hood is I wouldn't say yeah. Robin Robin Hood sort of is a mythological character designed to portray you know, taking from the rich to give to the poor. And pirates are like, no, I'm going to take from the rich for myself, mm-hmm. for my own self-interest and for the glory of it. Right. And that's more in what line with what Tombs is doing, you know. And I think that this... comes from a place of seeing the world as chaos, right? And well, he thinks the I world to... he thinks the world's rigged. He thinks the world is rigged. He sees it as completely rigged. And of course, Spider-Man, of course, obviously doesn't agree with him. Sure. Um, yes. Spider-Man has a much more, shall we say, young, maybe even naive moral code or sense of a moral code that tombs represents kind of an older version who's become more cynical jaded yeah yeah you can see him and peter as being kind of alike it's just that tombs happens to be older and he's become more jaded more cynical and he's not willing to believe in the positive aspect of life anymore he has to basically say if i want a positive productive life i'm gonna take it Right. not going to come to me i can't earn it i've got to take it because anytime he you know the old tombs we met at the very beginning was probably a an adrian tombs who believed that he could work hard and get ahead that's where the idea that we said yeah. that, that smith notes about the american dream being a lie you know a convenient cultural lie and that you can you can work hard and get ahead and for tombs it's become the clear realization in his head is that that is a lie and that if i want to get ahead I need to cheat, steal, smuggle, do damage to people above me. You know, he's not necessarily thinking he's right. kicking down. He thinks he's kicking up. And I think, well, elite. I think to that, he point gives that speech too, to Peter, that speech to Peter, you know. And I think there's what, what hinges him on maybe less sympathetic, in my opinion, is that it's not that he's, it's the elites, in my opinion. I think mm-hmm. he's wronged by the government, right? The well, he sees him as part of the same. He sees them all as kind of a little bit of the same. I mean, sure, Stark, the government, but, he sees them as being hand in hand. But to your naivete point at the beginning, right, he initially says, I have a contract, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're here. And he kind of trusts the institution to recognize their own overreach, perhaps, or at least recognize him and, and see him and, and provide him with what he might need to to be to deal with the loss. And when that doesn't happen, I think that's the snap. And and as a, as a result, sure, you can argue there's an elites, but I think I think it's also there's a distrust in the kind of government structure around him that allows him system. to break. Right. He doesn't believe the sure. system is fair. The system the is system, not fair because the system literally just fucked him. Right. Well, yes, it's, it did. Fucked, I mean, but, it did. Know. It did. It basically yeah. it's the elites who are telling the government what to do, and they all become a sense part of this system. That's rigged in his mind. It's rigged against him. And therefore he is susceptible when he finds the opportunity to give it the middle finger and take what he wants, you know? And of course it leads him down a path that eventually ultimately puts him in a situation where he's going too far. Of course he threatens to kill Peter, you know, that, that, that talk they're having Child, in the car. What, and 17, yeah, 18 year old. 15. He's supposed to be 15, I think. And then afterwards, you know, he's having that sympathetic talk with him while he's preparing. He's literally gone so far that he can see no way of turning back. He's become so committed to this particular way of doing things. It's like he's chasing the next big thing so badly. He starts to even lose sight of the way or why he's doing it, you know. 
Yeah. It's like he becomes like a caged animal or something like pinned in a corner all of a sudden. And that yeah, was becomes brought his on own by worst enemy. He, yeah. I mean, he that long on. enough to see himself become the villain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He kind of did. I mean, that whole incident on the ferry and them getting on the radar just sort of blew it all, blew up the whole thing in his face. And so he, out of, in a sense of desperation, he wasn't going to just walk away. He's like, I got to make that one last score. You know, that one last score that usually leads, you know, whatever anti-hero you're rooting for. What normally happens in a movie when the guy's like, I got one more score and then I'm getting out. What ends up happening? Usually they're dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fortunately for him, Spider-Man saved his bacon. You know, <laughs> he did foil him, of course, and mm-hmm. wreck it all. But he, in a sense, also saved him. Which then, of course, leads us to that question about, you know, his, both his moral code, but also the debate we had in the main podcast about why he didn't give him up to the scorpion in prison yeah well i think that's part of it like you said yeah but i think it's worth noting i think it's worth noting here that i think one of the things that i think really makes this movie so good is that unlike other situations the care the villain is incredibly complex there is complexity and there's relatability that i think i think i said this on the on the regular pod, but I feel mm-hmm. like this is where we start really seeing good villains in the MCU mm-hmm. um, and kind of establish justifications this coming week with Black Panther. I think yes. we'll really see a oh, good, yeah. you know, some, 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 some deepness to the character of, of a villain versus just a foil. Um, I always I think find that, that, I always find that good villains are the ones that become like a reflection on the hero where you can see both their point of views all of a sudden and it complexes, you know, how you feel about the character. Right. The Both good the one. good and the bad. You like you'd almost be okay if the villain won. You could see exactly. why they exactly. would be justified in winning. But at the same time, you know the hero's gonna win, but there's always a sense that the hero should hopefully learn something if they do defeat a villain like that. You know, there's something that needs to be sort of taken away and realized. And I think next week, Black Panther very much takes away a powerful realization. I hope we'll probably get to talk about that on the main pod because at the end of that film, he definitely finds a way to sort of strike a middle ground between what him and Killmonger wanted, right. you know, the yeah, isolation versus the involvement just happening to chart a third way. So um, any final thoughts about um, Spider-Man or anything about Thor that you thought we should have mentioned? Thor's, no, fun. I mean, Thor's fun and all, but I just thought there was way more interesting, something interesting about the Spider-Man villain here that was interesting. I mean, Jeff Goldblum just eats up the um, the well, scene yeah. in Thor the way that Michael Keaton eats up the scenery and, you know, Spider-Man. So, Well, there might be an interesting thing to think about at some point, maybe not today because it's a larger topic, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But to kind of take an even higher view of things and to wonder, like, Thor's a great example because you have the first two phases with mm-hmm. Thor and then you have the next phase and on with Thor mm-hmm. and there is a drastically different character change in my opinion in terms of tone of his character his movies mm-hmm. his involvement and then also a a color palette change in many ways oh, yeah. to really brighten up his world especially in in his movies to some people's maybe groans at times but you know at the same time it's a it's a dramatic shift and I think that it would be neat to explore what that has meant and what that has correlated to in the larger MCU. No, right? I definitely is, is that is that something that is Thor specific, let's say, or is that something that Kevin Feige went, oh crap, we need to we need to we need to lighten up a little I bit. I think that's Taika. 
honestly. I think he was it. I think that's part of the the fact that what he brought to that character and the way he opened up that character to some change. I think, but I think that's necessary. You can't just have sure. these characters doing the same sure. movies. I like to look he at did the three, it too, I think, right? you know, yeah, and the three Captain America movies, even though they all kind of remain within kind of a, a compact narrative or a similar tone. They all have their own individuality to them in the way that the stories are being told. I mean, the first one is obviously a world 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 war piece. The second one is a, a spy thriller, and the third one is kind of like, you know, almost a semi war, right, between yeah. superheroes. And so there's always a little bit of everything that can go on in these films. And I think it's important that they do evolve like that because if they stay the same, yeah, people aren't going to want to watch that. I mean, I think they had to do something drastic with Thor. To speak of Thor for a minute here, sure. I think they had to do something drastic because I don't think a lot of people like Dark World. <laughs> I so think I, we we have discussed this. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for a long time, Thor, the Dark World, and then Thor were my two least favorite movies in the MCU, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't even checked my list, but they might still be in, in, in all irony. But <laughs> yeah, they were just, they because it was one of those like, yeah. It was kind of cool for like the first 30 minutes of each movie and then you get bored and you get like it weighs down and it feels got formulaic. Yeah. Kind of predictable. I mean, I will say the thing about Thor Ragnarok that really opened a lot of my eyes to it was the fact that it it just sort of changed the game. It took everything, turned it over, spilled it all out on the table Mm -hmm. and then scattered it around and said, "Okay, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And it really played with with already established um, jokes or already established ideas and it Mm -hmm. turned them into jokes sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, mix so, it up yeah and so and again i think and i think with spider-man we get to see uh sort of like a, a growing pains you know i i think about the title about spider-man homecoming and what is the final event that he skips out on homecoming dance ha, 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 ha. <laughs> oh, yes. what do you think about the vulture being the first villain introduced in that spider world i kind of liked it actually because i kind of like yeah, the fair. fact that it, it was a bit of a left field um, but considering what they did and setting him up as being somebody who has a daughter, of course, that Peter has a crush on Liz going to his school and that it puts it in a sense, very close to home. It's not going out there stretching the game or anything. It's very close to home in his backyard, basically kind of vibe, right. which I think for Spider-Man and kind of, shall we say, grounding him a little bit more in this interpretation, I think it works very well. Did you see the scene in the Tom Holland Spider-Man where he stands up in front of the flag and that's right before, hey, good job, Spider-Man, do a backflip, yeah. right? <laughs> he, but he stands up in front of the flag and it yeah. to me looks exactly like, or or an homage at least to, the scene from Spider-Man 3 with Tobey yeah. Maguire where he, he does his in front of the flag scene. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> like what it's like what George Lucas says, you know, it rhymes. It's not always the same thing, but it rhymes. Mm. And that's what they're doing visually. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, all right so that was a, that was a that was a great talk so let's uh <laughs> just want to throw this out here folks you know what are your thoughts tell us mm-hmm. do you think tombs was a an unfairly persecuted man or does he a villain who deserved what he had coming to him or was he somewhere in between someone who was simply corrupted by powers tell us so read us write us in at not funny guys dot off the reels at gmail.com hit us up on instagram at not underscore funny underscore guys underscore presents over on the Twitter, or if you used to call it X, at Not Funny Guys Pod. And Blue Sky, we are just the Not Funny Guys. So, folks, until next time, stay strange, keep asking questions. <laughs>